Now let us turn together to the letter of Paul to the Ephesians in the New Testament where we find ourselves still in the fifth chapter of that letter, Ephesians chapter 5. And we're going to read once more the whole section from verse 21 to verse 33 that deals in particular with the Christian teaching on marriage. Ephesians 5 from verse 21 to the end. These words, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Thus far, once more, the inspired words of the Apostle Paul, the very word of God, may it be blessed to our understanding this evening. Now, last Sunday night, many of you will recall that we began for the first time to look at this great section on the subject of Christian marriage, the verses that flow indeed from verse 21, a transition verse between what the Apostle has been teaching us on being filled with the Spirit and the first of three subjects that he deals with respectively in connection with marriage and the home and the doctrine of work. Now in this great passage, as we saw in an overview of it last Lord's Day evening, we have perhaps the most exalted treatment of the subject of marriage that is found anywhere in the Holy Scriptures. And I need to remind you as we begin to look at it under another aspect this evening that it is indeed not isolated at all from the rest of the epistle, but it arises from the teaching that the apostle has been giving in verses 18 to 21 of this fifth chapter, the teaching indeed on being filled with the Holy Spirit of God. 
And you'll remember that we saw when we looked at that section that the mark of being filled with God's Spirit is respectively that we have joyful fellowship, that we enter into biblical worship, verse 19, that our lives are marked by continual thanksgiving, verse 20, and, and this is very important, the transitional verse, verse 21, the fourth mark of being filled with the Spirit is the mark of general submission to one another. We learn from one another, we respect one another, we come with a humble attitude toward our fellow believers and an attitude that is ready to learn and profit from that mutual submission, the one to the other. But then you notice that the apostle begins to develop that thought of submission that is so central to being filled with the Spirit. And quite clearly, he views the relationship of marriage and the home and the Christian's daily work in connection with being filled with the Spirit. And so we must say this evening that in a very specific way, if we claim to be filled with God's Holy Spirit as Christians, then it should be reflected in our marriages, in our homes, the relationship between children and parents, and in our work situation, in the relationship between the employer and the employee. And brethren and sisters, I need again to emphasize this evening that the marks of being filled with the Spirit of God are not out there in some ethereal region of life. And they're certainly not found in the possession, as many of our charismatic friends insist, in those extraordinary gifts of the Holy Spirit that were given for the first century church, but we believe are not continued in this present age. But the marks of being filled with the Spirit along with those that I mentioned a moment ago, are that we are in right relationship with the Lord as husbands and wives, as children to parents and parents to children, and in that specific area, even of our daily work in the ordinary affairs of daily life. Now this evening, I want, before we come to the specific teaching that Paul gives, first to the wife and then to the husband, which we'll deal with in the next two or three Sunday evenings, God willing, before we come to that section, I want this evening simply to look at some general principles relating to this teaching on marriage. And I confess my indebtedness at several points to the exposition of this passage uh, in the writings of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a very singular and very rich study in his volume on Ephesians called uh, Life in the Spirit in Marriage, Home, and Work. And there are two general things that I want us to notice, really as the very foundation for the studies that we hope to take in the next several Lord's Day evenings. I want you first to notice with me some governing principles from the section. I want you secondly to notice with me the very unique view of marriage that we hold as Christians. These two things, then, with God's help, we will do. Now, first of all, the governing principles of this whole passage. They're very wonderful, 
They're very obvious in a way. But I think they are so obvious that perhaps in our reading of it, we are in danger of missing them altogether. And that's why I want to take a look at them this evening before we come, as I say, to the more specific teaching that Paul gives both to wives and then to husbands. Now, you've seen with me that there is one leading governing principle throughout the passage, and that is the principle of submission. Verse 21, which really begins the teaching on marriage, although it is, as we said, a transitional verse between the doctrine of being filled with the Spirit and the specific applications of that. There in that verse, it is laid out clearly and unmistakably, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. The leading governing principle without question is that of submission. Now, you may want to notice, and this is interesting, that in verse 22, the word submit is not even in the original text. It would read originally in verse 22, wives unto your own husbands as to the Lord. There's actually no verse there. But it's very obvious and it's quite indisputable that the apostles' thought, as we said, carries over from verse 21. And the principle is that of submission, as we saw in our overview last Sunday. The controlling principle of the whole passage, both for wives and for husbands, is that of submission. The wife to her husband in the Lord. The husband to the Lord in such a way that he too is serving the interests of his wife, as we saw. Now, that's the obvious principle, and we did speak about it at some length last Lord's Day evening. But it's the other ones that I want to draw your attention to this evening. And I think there are some seven in number. Now, the first of them is this, that as you read these verses with me tonight, from verse 21 to the end of the chapter, we as Christians should not think that we are automatically right in all that we do. Now, if you are an honest Christian this evening, you will admit, as I would have to admit, that we began the Christian life with that very thought, unfortunately. That because we have become Christians and are new creations in Christ Jesus, we would be automatically right in all that we would do. In the realm of our work, in the realm of our marriages, in the realm of our relationships, and in other ways, we thought, many of us, that all would be well because we are new creations in Christ Jesus. And moreover, some of us probably came unto, under the influence of the evangelists or preachers that led us to Christ, whose message essentially was that when you become a Christian, everything changes and you are in a sort of magical atmosphere where all the problems will work themselves out. All has changed. There'll be no further problems for you now that you are in Christ. Now, of course, you would realize, having traveled the Christian way some length, that this is obviously not true. If it were true, we would not need a single one 
of the New Testament epistles. Because so many of these epistles take up most of their time and energy in dealing with the outworking of that new life that God has placed in us by regeneration. Beloved, it is not automatic that we do those things that are right. We have to learn them, and very often in a painful and sometimes a painstaking way. Now that is why this teaching on marriage is given to us in such fullness and perspicuity here in the fifth of Ephesians. Basic rightness with God does not mean that we are automatically right in all that we say and do. Now, the second principle that I think governs our understanding of this passage is that there will indeed be new problems that we've never confronted before. And I think many of us can testify sometimes with shame to that truth. Or if they're not new, we never had to face them before. One of the reasons is that, you see, as non-Christians, we never thought very deeply about our lives. We were in the mainstream, the stream that our Lord described as being that great company that go in through the broad gate that leads to destruction. And we traveled that road in crowds and in the company of men and women who generally didn't think very much about life and the importance of relationships and how they should be conducted and what is a right marriage as opposed to a wrong marriage and what is the proper relation of children to their parents or employees to their employer. We went with the crowd. And to take an example of this, in marriage, for instance, the pagan wife may have been converted and become a Christian and perhaps she began to be taught, and with biblical accuracy, but there is now no difference between Jew and Greek, between barbarian and the educated person, and between man and woman, Galatians 3.28. Now, of course, it is a biblical truth, but it respects salvation. As we realize, there is no difference before God in terms of race, or standing, or any other human consideration in terms of salvation. But she has fastened on this teaching, and it has led her to feel that there must be a new understanding in marriage that she should have. And now she no longer needs to be in subjection to her husband, as she was as a pagan wife before. And she begins to act on that principle and to upset the marriage relationship because she feels she has a new freedom in Christ. But what's happening is she's having to confront a problem that wasn't there before. And what she needs to do is think through the implications of that situation. Or the husband that formerly was a tyrant in his marriage and has become a Christian needs to think through his new situation. So that, you see, once we become Christians, very often we face new problems that weren't there before. Or children are converted. And because they have found a new freedom in Christ they begin to feel and to move along the direction of disobedience to their parents, feeling that they are no longer bound by these things. 
Now you see what the passage teaches us is that we need to think carefully and biblically and discover exactly what responsibilities we have in the relationship that has become new for us in marriage because we are Christians. Now the third governing principle is this, that the passage teaches us that Christianity has something to say about the whole of life. Now, it's part of the wonder of becoming a Christian, I think, that we cannot say that my experience of salvation relates only to my religious life, can we? Like the person who is only religious but not Christian, who when Sunday comes around says, it's time for religion again, so I pick up my religion bag and I take it off to church. And on Monday, when I go to the office, I pick up the other bag, which is my business bag, and I bear that with me. But you see, there's no interrelation of these two. And what the passage teaches us here is that Christianity, by contrast, truly understood and practiced, has something to say about the whole of life and every relationship within us, within it. The Christian life is a whole life that enters into the realm of work and home and marriage and everything else. And if it doesn't, then we are living not really as Christians, but as those only who have a mere smattering of religion upon them. Now, the fourth principle I suggest is this, that Christian teaching never contradicts or undermines other biblical principles of life and living. That is, Christian teaching on marriage. Now, you know we're living in a day and an age when, even in Christian circles, there's often been a division between the Old Testament and the New Testament in professing Christians' thinking. In some dispensational denominations, for instance, the Old Testament is basically disparaged. It's a thing that uh, is useful in a certain sense because God dealt with men in seven different dispensations, but of course many of the ways of dealing with him then were passed by when God discovered that they simply didn't work and he moved on to something else. Now this is the extreme dispensational view as I understand it. And there it leads to a disparagement of the Old Testament scriptures. And I was told even by one of our members recently that he came across a young man who is presently seeking to form his own denomination. A house church has begun to meet. And he takes the view even regarding the New Testament scriptures that some of them are no longer valid for his group, because they have passed beyond the New Testament in terms of their greater knowledge. An incredible situation. So that, for instance, the whole Gospel of Matthew is ruled out right up to the point of Christ's crucifixion. From that point onwards, it is relevant. But previously, because Christ's kingdom teaching Uh, this young man believes, no longer applies to the church in this age, he's dismissed it, though it's part of the sacred scriptures. Now, even in the Reformed Church, we can be in danger of taking that view, of setting over 
some of the Old Testament against the New Testament teaching. Now this passage, beloved in the Lord, reminds us that the New Testament teaching on marriage, or indeed upon any other subject, never contradicts or sets aside the fundamental principles that God has laid down in the earlier part of his inspired word. And that on the subject of human relationships and the nature of man and the purpose of marriage, we are guided by the old covenant principles as we are guided by the New Testament interpretation of them. Now, why do I emphasize this? Because there in the heart of our passage, in verse 31, look at it. Paul lays down the principle of Christian marriage as arising firmly from Genesis chapter 3. He says, therefore it was written, that the man would leave his father and mother and would cleave to his wife, and the two of them will become one in the relationship of marriage. Now you see, what the New Testament invariably does is not to set aside the Old Testament like some piece of flotsam and jetsam that is swept up on the beach and left there by the receding tide, but it supplements the teaching. It opens it out. It enlarges it. It takes the original contribution of God's word by the Spirit and it fills it out in terms of the doctrine of Christ. But it never, never contradicts it. And we can never say, beloved, in this relationship of marriage or any other fundamental teaching of the word on our lives, that because we have new life in Christ, the old principles never hold. No, the Old Testament teaching came from God and is always biblically to be observed, even though it is supplemented often in the New Testament and made more full. Now, the fifth principle is this that the New Testament always gives us reasons for its teaching. I mentioned last Sunday evening the truly revolutionary teaching of this passage that a wife must be in submission to her husband as to the Lord. Almost as though, and I say it reverently and I said it last Sunday evening, almost as though Paul is saying, consider yourself as if you were married to Christ and behave in that way. He takes the duty of the husband and speaks not of the husband's right or authority, but of his responsibilities to his wife, in which he is really serving the interests of his wife, just as she is submitting to him in the Lord. Now, these are truly revolutionary teachings. But you see, the passage doesn't come to us here in Ephesians 5 in a set of rules and regulations and say to us, do this and don't do that, as though it were addressing us in our infancy or in our childhood. Now, whenever you find a religion, even though it bears the name of Christianity, that does do that and comes with do's and don'ts and regulations without reasons for them, be suspicious of it because that is not the way that the Christian faith is laid out in the New Testament. 
Always we are given principles. Always we are given reasons, as here in Ephesians 5, so that we may rejoice in doing what we are to do because we know why we are to do it. And the scripture tells us why. The wife is to be in obedience to her husband, not because he is some tyrannical figure that God has put over her in marriage, but because her submission has been made first to the Lord Jesus Christ. The husband is to love his wife, not because merely that is his duty to do it, but because in that love she is to see something of the expression of Christ's love for his church and of his own self-giving for her. There are reasons given why we are to obey this teaching. And the very grounds of our holiness and sanctification are based, you see, upon the Christian grasping and understanding and applying this glorious teaching and working it out in his daily life. Now, the sixth principle is this but there is an intimate relation between doctrine and practice. And we see it in this passage. You know, one of the amazing things about Scripture, and I hope you're constantly amazed by it as I am, is that we always have a blend of the two. Have you noticed that in the expositions on these Lord's Day mornings? In the life of Elisha, you look at the poisoned pottage, as we did several Lord's Day mornings ago, and you say, as one of the members said to me afterwards, I read that passage ahead of coming to church, and I just wondered what you would get out of it. There just seemed to be nothing there, this gentleman said. But what rich doctrines, biblically, we found in that and other passages in the life of Elisha, the prophet of grace. Now, that's the amazing thing about Scripture. It always blends doctrine with practice. And here we are in the midst of this practical section of the epistle. We've left, as some people would think, the doctrinal chapters behind in chapters 1 through 3. And from chapter 4 onwards, we have the practical outworking of Christian living. And in a certain sense, that's true. The apostle has dealt with our speech, our relationships with one another, being filled with the Spirit, a great variety of ordinary practical truths affecting our daily living. But in the midst of these sections, you see again and again, as here, the most amazing and thrilling introduction of profound biblical doctrine. Be in for a surprise, Dr. Lloyd-Jones says in his commentary. When you're least expecting it, you're confronted by amazing and magnificent and glorious teaching. And we should beware of an overly simplistic analysis of Scripture. The man who says, this chapter is doctrine and this chapter is practice is almost certain to be wrong because they are intimately related. Christ loved the church and gave himself for it that he might cleanse it by the washing of water through his blood and present it a thing glorious without blemish and without spot. What exalted doctrine that is in the heart of a passage dealing with the nitty-gritty matters of human and Christian marriage and so on.
Now, the last principle that governs our understanding is this. The spirit in which Paul conducts the discussion. You're aware today we're living in a world that makes marriage the butt of endless jokes, the source of humor, the comedian on the stage and the television screen, when he's run out of all other subjects of humor, invariably turns to marriage and raises a laugh. But the apostle, beloved, does not handle it in that way, does he? Not at all. There's no jocularity, there's no flippancy. He doesn't deal with it in a partisan manner, as the comedian does, exalting the husband at the expense of the wife, or the wife at the expense of the husband. There's nothing heated in this treatment. He doesn't emphasize, as we saw last Sunday, the rights of one party over against another. And the world views marriage that way, and hence there is so much strife and trouble. He avoids all of these difficulties and wrong views of marriage and puts it firmly in the fear of Christ and as unto the Lord. So you see, even where there are disagreements in a Christian marriage, there's a sense in which we should have those disagreements on our knees in the fear of the Lord and seeking a solution as to the Lord that glorifies him. And if we practice those principles more, how gloriously many conflicts in marriage, even among Christians, would be solved. The spirit in which the apostle approaches it is so very different. Well, there are seven principles that govern and guide us through that passage. Now, the second thing, and very briefly on this, as you see, is the unique view of marriage that the apostle presents us with. You can't read this passage as we've done this evening without realizing that the Christian view of marriage is found nowhere else in this fallen world. It's in the Bible. It should be in our hearts. It should be practiced in our homes. And I just want to say really two things before I close tonight. The first is that our view is not the view of the vast majority. What is the view of the vast majority concerning marriage tonight? Well, it's one of several possible views, isn't it? Many people today believe that marriage is purely the physical relationship. They're attracted, the one to the other, for purposes of gratification. And very often it is physical or sexual gratification. And in that view of marriage, it is only then the legalizing of physical attraction. That's what many people think that marriage is all about. I go to be married before a judge or someone who is uh, in a position of authority to conduct the marriage service to legalize my physical attraction to the other person. Well, no wonder there's such an alarming rate of divorce amongst us because really that kind of thing ultimately is in danger of being on the animal level alone. The higher view, and this is a second one, is that it is the result of social development. It's higher than the first view. And those that hold it say, well, in the course of time, as society developed, it realized that monogamy was much more preferable than having many partners in marriage, and so legalized marriage, in their views, is 
unauthorized form of the sexes living together, solving their problems between man and woman, but it's nothing more in the end than a social contract. Now, the other view, of course, that is very prevalent in society today is the feminist view, where men and women, we are told, are equal in every respect. And we're seeing more and more of these feminist type of marriages today with all the spill-out of the problems and disaster that they lead to. Because you see, such teaching that men and women are equal in every respect can only lead to the dissolving of family structures. No one is the head. Everyone's word is equal to the others. And it dismantles effectively the very structure of God-honoring marriage that he has established in his word. Some of us have seen the very unfortunate effects of that kind of marriage that results from the feminist movement in our world today. Now, the second thing is this, and I end on this note, that the Christian view of marriage is to be governed only by the teaching of the Bible. We stand out today, you and I, We are the odd men and odd women out in a world that has gone after these other views of marriage, holding out both hands to get them. But we believe that the Old and New Testament together provide God's standard for marriage, that we draw our teaching from the whole word of God, from Genesis as well as from Ephesians from the Psalms as well as from the Gospels. And for the Christian, the key question is not what do I feel about marriage myself, but the key question is what does the Word of God teach me about it? We also embrace the view that it is not a human contrivance or arrangement merely, but it is gloriously instituted by God. We look on the terms of the relationship within marriage and we see them clearly stated without any possible ambiguity at all. The wife's responsibilities, the husband's responsibilities, and both of their responsibilities as related to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we say in the end, as we must say, that marriage can only be fully understood and appreciated when we understand the doctrine of the church and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because it's in those truths, as we'll see, that the passage is grounded. If you don't understand the doctrine of the church and its relation to the Lord Jesus Christ as its Savior, then you'll never understand the true glory of the doctrine of Christian marriage. Well, in summary, let me say this. One of the wonderful results of being a Christian, it seems to me, is this, that we begin to understand what biblical marriage should be. And you know there's a sense in which we shouldn't be so astounded, but there are so many divorces, we should be surprised that there are relatively few when you understand that only the Christian has the key to unlocking the true meaning and significance of this ordinance. 
Well, as we go on to look at this passage on forthcoming Sunday evenings, may we be able to see marriage and you and everything in these three relationships of marriage, the home and work, in a new sense, and far from rejecting the biblical teaching, as many do today, may we be enabled to embrace them more and more with all our hearts. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for these undergirding principles this evening. We feel their necessity uh, to lay the foundation, as it were, for a true understanding and appropriation of this passage. Help us to realize our unique position. Help us to value it and not to despise it, but in our practice more and more to conform to it with humility of heart for Christ's sake. Amen.